Well, good morning. That's the best one of those I've ever got. This is a great start. I'm in. All right. You know, it's always good to, to be here, and I was just talking to someone on the way in, and they, they told me they have their 40th anniversary today. And it's such a cool thing to be around people of God and, and great examples for things like that. In our text today, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 6, going to verse 8. If you don't mind, to stand as we read the Word of God. It says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this time that we have today. I pray, Lord, that you'd be with the word. I pray that your word would go out in power regardless of the weakness of the preacher. I pray, God, that hearts would be open and ready to receive it. And I pray that there would be few hearts that the message hits as hard ground. Lord, I pray that someone today would come to know you as Christ, as Savior, as Lord, and that we would all leave a little different than when we came in. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I like sports. I'm a big uh, activity person. Uh, lately, it's been jujitsu, but uh, growing up, it was track. I did football. I did basketball. I did cross country. I, I love sports. And this is somebody I'd never heard of because it's a sport I don't know very well. How many of you guys have ever heard of a guy named George Mallory? All right. I think everybody is on the same page as me then. George Mallory was one of the first men that took expeditions to climb Mount Everest. Do we have any rock climbers? No. All right. I'm going to say you don't really live in a great place to be a rock climber. Uh, but that's, it is what it is. At first, George said he wanted to climb the mountain because it was there. Great reasoning. Upon further investigation and some letters he wrote to his wife, it, it came to be known that he wanted to climb the mountain because he felt like he needed to do something great to be worthy of her love. He needed to do something great to, to show that he was worth her time. If you are unfamiliar with the story, George died on the mountain. We're not sure whether or not he reached the summit. The camera that was on his person was disappeared. And unfortunately for him and for his family, his body remained on Everest for 75 years. 1924, when he originally went up, they couldn't find it until 1999. You see, this decision that he made, he sought to prove his worth to someone who already loved him and paid the ultimate price for it. 
This affected not only him, but his family as well. George's son was noted to have said this. He said, I would much rather have known my father than grown up in the shadow of a legend or a hero, as some people perceive him to be. That's a very sad sentiment. Ultimately, though, the decisions that we make in our lives are of the utmost importance. Both the positive decisions you make, the negative decisions you make, they make great impact on your life and on the lives of the people around you. It can be something as serious as life and death based upon a small decision that you didn't think was ever going to kill you. But even more importantly, it can determine your eternity. If someone has already settled salvation in their heart, the question becomes, are you ready to answer the Lord about the way you're living? But if not, are you ready to see eternity? Today, if, I, if you get nothing else out of this, I want you to get this main idea. I want you to know you must trust in Christ or be ashamed. That's true for the Christian. It's true for the non-Christian in different ways. But you must trust in Christ or be ashamed. I want to show you a couple things out of this text. So we're actually going to go back to verse 1 in 1 Peter 2. It says, wherefore, now stop. If you ever read the Bible and you see wherefore, you need to go see what it's therefore. Pastor has trained you well. All right, so wherefore is a simple word. It basically means so, or because of what you just heard, therefore, this. All right, so as soon as we see wherefore, we need to go back. Well, luckily, we're only in chapter 2. I don't need to cover a whole book for you. Um, But I'm going to give you a synopsis of what goes on in chapter 1. Let's see what it's looked like. Well, he's talked about tribulation that they're going through. This is a time of great difficulty in the church. He's talking about godly living. Some of you guys may be familiar with the famous 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, which we'll talk about later. But more than anything else in the chapter, he covers the importance, the truth of salvation. I'm going to give you just some verses and some things that are going on in them. We're not going to have them on the screen. We're not going to read most of them. But in 1 Peter 1, 2, we see the Trinity functioning in our salvation. We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all doing their own specific work to bring us salvation. In 1 Peter 1.3, we get the message of salvation. In 1 Peter 1.4 and 5, we see the hope of salvation. In 1 Peter 1.8, we see the joy of salvation. In 1 Peter 1.10-13, it tells us the mystery of salvation. It's incredible. I can't get past this portion because he says the prophets didn't understand they desired to look into these things and even the angels were sitting there looking forward to what this would all mean in first peter 1 17 through 21 we see the glory of god in salvation and in first peter 1 23 through 25 we see the word of god containing the message of salvation You see, salvation is the theme of chapter 1 because it eclipses everything else. If we have salvation, we can get through difficult times. If we have salvation, it will be making us into holy people. Salvation 
is how we are born again. Because it fits in the theme, 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, I actually am going to read to you. It says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, it says, which liveth and abideth forever. It goes on to say, for all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth away. It says, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So we hear of God's salvation through his word. And as these verses tell us, wherefore, or because of this great salvation that we've been afforded as Christ followers, that we need to put to death the old life. We need to not live the way that we used to live. If you go back to 1 Peter 2, verse 1, he says something very interesting. He goes about it this way. He says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speaking... We aren't to be who we used to be. We are to be born anew, born again. Think about how the Bible references salvation. It says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It says, Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. In John 3.3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God without being born again. Prior to salvation, we had this evil within us, and it was our fleshly nature. And unfortunately for us, we still carry it around, that old man. But let's look at the things that we were filled with before in verse 1. The first one he gives us is malice. It says, wherefore laying aside all malice. Now, malice is ill will towards others. It is also the idea of unashamed and general wickedness. We had this prior to salvation, and we must put it to death in our new creation. Guile. This means to be lied to or tricking people for gain. We would do that in our lives. The Greek word dolos has a very interesting idea to it. It's the idea of a fish hook. We put a bait on a fish hook, we throw it in, and little does the fish know, it thinks it's getting a treat, it's getting a whole lot more. Now, I'm going to be honest, I'm not a fisherman, and the only thing I really normally catch is my sister. (laughs) She hasn't been fishing with me in a long time. I don't know why. But you see, the idea is, is we put something out deceiving the simple to their own demise. That's who we used to be. And when you have malice, when you have ill will, and when you have guile, you're bound to be a hypocrite. So it goes on to say, and hypocrisies. We were not consistent with even what we knew to be right and wrong. And we know that from the scriptures. In Romans 2, it says, you who think you're, you know, all that, you religious person, don't you also break God's law? He goes through and he shows them, he says, You condemn the guy from Romans 1 who lived a wild lifestyle, but you religious people, you know God's law and break it. There are plenty of people 
every person lived in a hypocritic state before we were saved. We knew what was right and we didn't do it. We told people what was right and we didn't do it. Then there's envy. We desired things that were not ours to a sinful extent. We desired things that were not ours to a sinful extent. It's not wrong to want things. It's okay to say, I would really like if this happened. It's okay to feel that way. What's not okay is I can't be happy unless I have it. What's not okay is when I want it so bad I'm willing to sin to get it. It says, and all evil speakings is the last part of verse 1. You know, our mouth is quick to say a lot of things that it ought not say. Even still, some of us need a bridle. No, all of us from time to time. Unfortunately, we're good at backbiting, we're good at complaining, and far more. The Bible is right to call the tongue a world of iniquity, a fire lit from hell. Or Gehenna, as it's put. So we need to not be that way anymore. We put to death the old man. We're to die daily, as the apostles say. We're to take up our cross and follow him, as Jesus says. And instead, we are born again. But how do we grow in this new life? First Peter 2.2. 2. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. As a Christian, we need sustenance. We need something to nourish the life that's within us, and that is the word of God. Understand the same word which contains eternal life, which that's what the scripture says. Psalm 19.7 goes on to say that, uh, oh man, it's going to get me. Psalm 19.7 goes on to say that uh, it is sufficient to save us. It is sufficient to save us. The same thing is said in 2 Timothy 3.15. It says, how that from a child that has known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. We have the scriptures that give us the message of eternal life, but more than that, it guides us through maturing in the Christian walk. It guides us through what we ought to be. It creates in us this growth. There's a reason in Deuteronomy 8.3 that the Bible is called what it is. It is talked about the way it is. If you read it, it says, and he humbled these, talking about the Israelites, and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. By that doth man live. Understand, God made you to be sustained in the reading and learning of his word. He made you to grow in that same fashion. I hope many of you have been with us this past week as you've gone through revival services. How many of you guys thought it was amazing to hear Pastor Ryan? Amazing to hear uh, Pastor Woodworth. And I'm sorry that you're stuck with me right after them. They could not have set me up any worse. (laughs) But if we really want revival, we need the word opened and expounded to us the way it was. 
If we really want revival, if we want revived hearts in this place, we need prayer and the word to be saturated in our daily lives. If this is all you get, if this is all the religion you have for the week, your religion is dead. I want to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, if we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. Is it too hard to get to church to hear it? Is it too hard to open our Bibles for five minutes a day and say, okay, God, what do you have for me? Knowing that that is the thing that's going to grow you. That's the thing that's going to mature you and change you. Knowing that it costs many men their very lives. Now, I want to go back to the analogy he gives. He says, as newborn babes desire ye the sincere milk of the words. If you guys don't know me, I have five children. I know I don't look old enough to have five children. I always get that too. But I have five children. Um, And I can tell you they're good for three things when they're born. Eat, sleep, poop. And really, they only do one of those things really well. (laughs) Eat and sleep's kind of here or there. You can ask any woman who's tried to feed a baby. Or man, but I more meant breastfeeding, so... Frankly, though, when a child is hungry, you can only distract them for so long. Maybe you can bounce them. Maybe you can play with them. Maybe you can have them take a nap. But that hunger doesn't go away. That longing, that desire, it is insatiable. They need it. Do you feel that way about the word of God? Do you feel that way about the truth in the scripture that is going to be the thing that grows us? You need to desire God's word more than your necessary food. That's what Job said. He said, neither have I gone back from thy commandments of his lips. He said, I have esteemed thy words of thy mouth more than my necessary food. Man, could we lose five minutes of sleep? Could we skip a meal and say, I'm going to read your word instead? You don't have to, but if it's getting in the way, why not? Now, we have to note that the word is what's going to change us. It's going to grow us. Romans 12, 2. Listen to what this says. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, how do you think we do that? What's going to change our mind? The word, that you may prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm going to tell you a secret. You want to know where God's will is? It's right here. 95% of everything God wants you to do is already written down. And if you're not doing the 95%, he's not going to lead you into the other five. Read Ephesians 5. Verse 26, it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. We must hear the word. We must read the word. We must know the word, and we must apply the word. I want to tell you, if you leave here and do nothing with anything you hear today, you'll be like the people talked about in James 1.22. But be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And I have to guard against it myself. It's not just you, it's all of us. We come to the word, we read it, we hear it, 
And a lot of times we leave like, well, that was good. Let's, what's for lunch? Or maybe you're thinking it right now. What's for lunch? And if you are, me too. But I'm hoping you're still listening. And you're still going to apply something. Note again that this mirrors what we know about children. They need fed. Eventually, after being fed for a while, they can feed themselves. My youngest child is old enough he can hold his own bottle, and it's so cute, but I remember the first time it happened, my wife kind of cried a little bit. She was not as excited as I was. I'm like, sweet, I don't hold a bottle anymore. And she was like, my baby is growing up. But you know, as they begin to grow, they begin to take in more food. They begin to be able to dive into more and and into deeper things. They begin to have more abilities. My kids are just getting to the point on jungle gyms where they start to use things in unintended ways because they feel comfortable enough to do it. But you know, the ultimate sign of maturity is not knowing the word, but applying the word. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says this. It says, For when in the time you ought to be teachers, you need one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even of them by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, I want to clarify, he's not saying you need milk to grow thereby because you're babies and you guys don't know how to grow up. He's saying you need to desire it like a child would. The point is the longing for, not the ability in it. But that's not even the point I want you to get. Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. They hear the word, they're practicing the word, they can use more of the word. They have experience in the word and in what it says. It should be noted that Matthew Henry said this. He said, the more reverence we have for the word of God, the more joy we shall find in it. If you find it hard to get into the word... That's not going to change by you sitting there saying, but I don't want to. Or it's hard. What's going to change it is you get into it and you grow to love it and you grow to long for it more and more. 1 Peter 2.3, it says, If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You see, it is in salvation that we would see the grace of the Lord. And that is one of our motivations for learning of Him, for changing our lives, for being made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, it says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then all were dead. And he that died for all, that they should live, not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. You see, these people would have been very familiar with the concept of the chapter. Sorry, that was my baby. (laughs) 
These people would have been very familiar with the concept of the chapter. They knew about salvation. Remember all those verses and all the things they talked about in chapter 1. And they also probably would have known Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Is God's word a blessing for you because you know him to be gracious? Again, the picture to the believer is not only that he needs to remove the evil things as seen in verse 1, but he needs to put in the good things as seen in verse 2 and with the motivation of verse 3. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says this. It says that you put off the former conversation, the old man concerning which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in your spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Christians, if we are not living a new life in Christ, we have reason to be ashamed. We have reason to worry that when we die, is God going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Does your life show that you truly live for him, that you trust him? And if you're like me, the answer is not all the time. And we need to fix that. We need to be made right. We need to continually be repenting. So we saw the first point, and now to the second. It says, made to be like Christ in faith. 1 Peter 2.4, it says, To whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. We come into Christ as this living stone. Don't get the wrong idea. This is not Night at the Museum with the Eastern Island heads. Anybody seen the movie Night at the Museum? Okay, there's a quote in the movie. It's pretty much the only thing they say. Hey, you dum-dum, give me gum-gum. That's not what we're saying Christ is doing here. What most people think Christ is doing is they're saying, hey, you dum-dum, no more fun-fun. That's not necessarily it either. Honestly, fullness of joy comes through Christ. It's not hedonism that will leave you empty and hating the decisions you've made. The idea is that we have Christ as our foundation, but he is one that we can turn to as well and learn from him because our Christ is not dead. He is alive. And he lives and works in our hearts and the Spirit brings the word to our knowledge. See, he is the basis for all that we do individually, for all that we do as a local church, and for all that we do as the universal church. But I want you to see in that verse that this is a stone disallowed indeed of men. Most of the time in people in Jesus' day, they could get along with him. That seems weird knowing he got crucified, right? They could get along with them when he wasn't asking them for something, when he didn't require something of them, when he wasn't coming against their religious systems, or when he lived in obscurity. You see, Jesus became a bother to the crowds when he called them to faith-filled following and not just acting as their personal genie. Jesus, come heal me. Jesus, do this. Jesus, my cousin, did that. Jesus, will you tell my brother to split the money with me? 
They just wanted Jesus to fix all their problems, but they didn't want Jesus. They wanted what they could get from him. You see, Jesus seems to see seems great to the crowds as long as they're the ones asking for something. When Jesus comes forward and he says, deny me, take up your cross and follow me, you know what, Jesus, we'll see you later. Think about the things that he says, how many times it goes from crowds down to the 12, because Jesus comes and says, you don't understand. You have to be ready to surrender it all. And they're not. They just wanted what they could get from him. They were greedy for gain, greedy for help. They were fair-weather friends. Long as Jesus had something cool to play with, they were in. Anybody have friends like that growing up? Did anybody ever be that friend growing up? You had that friend, you had a pool or a trampoline or whatever, I don't know. Point is, it's not the right way to treat people. I think a lot of us have done it that don't admit it. But you see, Jesus came to be trouble for the religious leaders because he showed their hypocrisy and he wasn't impressed by their manufactured religion. Today, people want to be religious or virtuous to the point that they look great themselves. They want to have someone say, man, you've got it all together but they don't want to actually admit when there's something wrong with them. This may be like the uh, actually unsaved extreme fundamentalist who cares a lot more about your dress code than your soul. This may be the social media influencer who's doing whatever he can to stay relevant. Maybe he needs to kneel in solidarity or put a black square on something. They want to do whatever looks right. They want to do whatever they think people are going to acclaim them for. It's like all the people who get on YouTube and they go and say, here, I gave you $1,000 and I recorded the whole thing. I'm like, well, if you got a million million watches on that video, you made your money back and you got all the goodness you're going to get. Congratulations. You just wanted men's approval. These people care about what the culture thinks of them, not about helping people or true righteousness. Don't be those people. Jesus became an embarrassment to his family, an offense into his hometown because they thought Jesus was getting a little too big for his britches. Isn't this Jesus, that the carpenter's son? Aren't we, don't we know his sisters? Aren't they coming to synagogue with us? And they were offended in him. People are happy to know Jesus until he makes claims about himself and us that we don't like. You can see this often in in a progressive Christian sense. Yeah, Jesus is great. Well, what about when he said that? Um, I mean, I don't know that Jesus really said that. Yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, I love the Bible. Why are you living in opposition to it? Because I don't believe Paul was really inspired, and I don't... Are you serious? What do you love? You love the parts that make you sound like you're okay. 
Jesus can become an offense to people. He was disallowed of men. It should not be a surprise to us in America that people hate Christ and Christians who live out their faith because not much has changed from then till now. We live in a quote-unquote, maybe at one time, quote-unquote Christian nation. And it was a lot more nominal than it was in anybody's heart. That's a problem we run into today. The good news is that no matter what the world says about us, what they say about our Christ, Christ was chosen by God. He was the planned Messiah, and without him, we would be of all men most miserable. Because he was the only possible Savior. He is the only possible Savior. You will not get to heaven by good works. You will not get to heaven by who your granddaddy is or whose hand you shook. I don't care how many old ladies you walked across the street. That's not the measure of heaven. The measure of heaven is are you as good as God is? Nope. Well, I guess you need someone else's righteousness and not yours. Someone like Jesus Christ. He is uniquely precious to us that know him. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says, You also, as lively stones, are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Note the term also, you also as lively stones. Christian, you are made to be like Christ. He is a living rock, then we are a lively stone. Remember, the term Christian comes from the idea, little Christ. We become the very picture of Christ to the world. We become representatives of him, which we'll get to more so later. See, but remember, the very word Christian is little Christ. This shows the picture that we're being formed, we're being fashioned, we're being made like Him. How many of you guys know Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, Ephesians 2, 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That word workmanship, it's from the Greek, it's like poema. It's actually where we get the word poem. But it means to make, to do something. We are God's creation. We are his masterpiece. We are the thing that he is creating, and he's creating us to look like who? Like him. You know, in ancient construction and modern construction, some things never change. You have to cut the building materials from time to time to make it fit the way it's supposed to. If you've ever watched someone want to make a winding road and pavers, they lay them all down first, they run a saw down the side in whatever shape they want, they cut it out. If they're going to make an arch, they can't just have straight bricks. They'll cut like sledges in. In making you like Christ, there will be things that need cut off, things that need adjusted, things that need scraped away because it's not quite the way it's supposed to be. You don't quite look like Christ yet. And you're going to have that until the day you see him in glory, and then we will be like he is. Note, though, as well, that we are built up together in a singular house, in a 
spiritual house. Friend, Christianity was never meant to be done alone. If you think you can be just as good a Christian at home, sitting by yourself, never talking to any other Christians, you're going to be really disappointed when you'd have to see them in heaven one day. You might as well learn to get along with them now. And you will never be more like Jesus than when you actually have to forgive someone, which happens when you deal with sinners. Ask your wife. Wives, ask your husbands, even though the husbands are going to go... We need one another. Something to keep in mind, this spiritual house is likely a temple because you look at the works that we're doing there. There's a priesthood. There's a giving of sacrifices. It's a picture. We become the temple of God. Think about that. We become the temple of God, collectively and individually. Why are we the temple of God individually? Well, who lives in us if you're a Christian? God does, the Holy Spirit. He is within you. You see, we are given a similar work to Christ. Our priesthood can be seen in our interceding for others, our fulfilling the ministry of reconciliation. That means telling other people the good news about Jesus and living a sacrificial life. We read Romans 12.2 earlier. We're going to read Romans 12.1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Hey, if he could die for you, you can't live for him? If he could die for me, I can't live for him? What is wrong with us? Note also who makes our spiritual service acceptable. It's made acceptable in Christ according to the verse we were looking at, according to 1 Peter 2.5. He makes us acceptable. He's the reason we can raise up sacrifices. And even when we do that, it's not us, it's Christ within us. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to get to the verses we started with today. It says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be Confounded. That word means ashamed, by the way. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You know, it says, it is contained in Scripture. When you hear things like Isaiah saith, the scripture saith, the spirit saith, all these things need to make you, the listener, ask one question. Where? Where does it say that? What is going on? What is the context? Where? Where am I going to get this information? These concepts are found earlier. If you were in Isaiah 8 and 28, you would see all these things are talked about. In Psalm 118.22, In the Gospels, it's talked about in Romans, it's talked about in Acts. This is a very famous, very familiar passage. 
Now I'm going to do something that might seem kind of weird. I'm actually not going to highlight the gospel ones very much because I think we've heard those a lot. How many people are more familiar with the New Testament than the Old? Just about all of us. All right. When Jesus talked about it, when he said it, he was condemning the religious leaders of his day, showing that he was the cornerstone, that it was Jesus. But look in, in Isaiah 8. Let's, let's walk this back a little bit. It says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. By the way, that's where we get 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asketh the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's where that comes from. It says, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, both to the houses of Israel, and for a gen and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. You see, if you're familiar with the historical context, Jerusalem had a problem. These, uh, these Syrians came in, and they came in with the people of Israel, specifically, I believe it was King Pekah, and they come in, and they're trying to attack King Ahaz in Jerusalem. They're coming in, and there's a two-front war coming against him. And you know the person that Ahaz should have trusted in? Say it. He should have trusted in God. Do you know what he does instead? He calls up the Assyrians, not literally, probably sends an envoy, a messenger. And he gets them involved to go attack the Syrians, and he thinks that's going to get them out of it. You understand, King Ahaz was a wicked king, and him and the people loved their sin. They loved worshiping anyone who was not the one true God. They liked gods they could fashion to look just like them just like we do in America. They didn't want to worship the one true God. They didn't want his help. But you see, God is telling these people, I will place my cornerstone, what you should have based your life upon. The, the people didn't want to. They refused to believe the Lord or his prophets, and they stumbled and were offended at his word. But you see, the results of asking Assyria for help were terrible. Assyria not only attacked Syria, but they also attacked the northern tribes of Israel. Then the northern tribes of Israel started being taken and brought to the Assyrian lands. Then they started to have to pay tribute. They were put underneath Assyria. This is where the Samaritans come from, by the way. Samaria and all these places will eventually be completely taken over. They'll be replaced with Gentiles who intermarry with the women and now you've got these half-breed people, according to the Jews, and they hate them. And it was all because the Jerusalem king didn't want to trust God. He didn't want to follow God. He wanted to do things his own way. In Isaiah 28, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He says, He that believeth shall not Make haste. Isaiah 28 would have been written towards Israel, the northern tribes this time. And it would have been written shortly before the ultimate destruction by Assyria in 722. 
But during this time, the people of the northern tribes were called the drunkards of Ephraim. That's how God referred to them. He called them this for two reasons. One, it was true. From the priest down to the plebeian, everyone was drinking. The other reason is they spurned good judgment like someone does when they're inebriated. They spurned the truth. They spurned what God had for them because they didn't want to trust in God. They loved their God alcohol. God references them and says there's vomit everywhere. There is no place clean. This is the same chapter. In other words, he's saying seemingly, literally, and figuratively, the entire thing is in moral decay and physical grossness. I'm just saying, cleaned up enough puke from children. It's disgusting. There is nothing morally right that they have. They've been utterly corrupted. They've trusted in false gods and in the joy of their debauchery. In opposition to this, this lack of judgment, the people, God says, I will make a stumbling stone. God will provide a firm foundation who's worth our trust far more than any alcohol or our choice sin. I don't mean alcohol was a sin, but the drunkenness they were falling into. John Bunyan says this, it says, one leak will sink a ship and one sin will destroy a sinner. Doesn't take much. In Psalm 118.22, it says, The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. You see, from this, people like to trust in all kinds of things. They like to trust in their money. They like to trust in their abilities. They like to trust in anything, as long as it's not what you ought to be trusting in. As long as it's not the one true God. And Jeremiah, which you won't be able to see on the screen, it's Jeremiah 2.13, but it says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn them out cisterns, which can hold no water. They're broken cisterns that hold no water. What in the world is an idol going to do? You made it out of wood. You cooked on part of it. Now you're praying to it. What in the world? And in the same sense, if you were just here this past week, You heard, flee idolatry. Our idols today are not things we make out of wood, but generally they are idols of our heart, things we have given God's place. You see, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He is the one that the Jews rejected, and he is the one that today someone is rejecting. There is someone in this room today who's given their life and service to other things, Maybe it's drugs or drinking or other sin. Maybe it's pride or selfishness. Whatever it is, today you have the option. You can encounter this stumbling stone. You can come broken over your sin, or you can be crushed by the weight of this life and your sin debt in eternity. You must come to know him. If you trust in him, you will not be ashamed. And the final point today, don't worry, I'm not like pastor, it's not my longest point. (laughs) We become representatives of Christ. 
1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas we speak against you as evildoers, as they do that, you may see your good works, they may see your good works which they shall behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, as Christians, we are chosen people. God has in this time chosen the church as his vehicle instead of just Israel. You see, we are a royal priesthood. We will reign with God at the end of time as kings and priests, but before that, right now, you have a priestly ministry. Pray for people. Give them the truth that will save them. Show them the sacrifice that was made. Live a life of holiness. It goes on to say, we are a holy nation. This is so cool because the word nation is ethnos. It's not that we're going to be joined by our specific ethnicity. The kingdom of God will be of people of all different tribes and tongues and nations, but they will all be a people, a holy people. They will be people who are not connected by any ethnicity, gender, status, or any other menial measure, but in the holy Christ who died and works righteousness in us. Think of 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. It says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We are to show forth the praises of God. I loved the songs we sang today. As Christians, we ought to sing and shout all the good things God has done for us. We must recount His benefits. Last but not least in this list, we've gone from darkness to light. Understand, we have been given mercy. We were in the kingdom of darkness. We were brought into God's kingdom. We were gone from death to life, from spiritual blindness to seeing through faith. We have gone from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. We are changed into the kingdom of light. Now, light's kind of scary because it shows you what's really there. And if you're in the kingdom of light, you're going to see your sin more and more and more. And pray to God that you see your sin more than the sins of other people. Remember, friends, if you're a Christian today, then this world is not your home. You need to live like a citizen of heaven. That way we can give people something that they've longed for. Everyone knows this world is not right. Everyone knows there's things that are missing. Everyone knows, but they're trying to fill a God-shaped hole with whatever they can find. And you, with your life, with your words, with all of these things, you can be what brings them to an understanding of what it is they're missing. What they've longed for. We ought to live in a way that makes 1 Peter 3.15 come out. 
but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason, the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How are they going to know that there's hope within you if you're just like them? If you're at home in this world and not at home in heaven. Our good works ought to be glorifying to God and a testimony to man. Jesus said it this way, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Today, as the musicians are going to come forward, friend, today you too can step out of a world of darkness. You too can find that the only firm foundation in this whole world is Jesus Christ. You can find that the good news that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, that he came, that he lived a sinless life, and then he died in our place. Today, you can repent of your sins. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can turn to him as Lord, as Savior. Today, you're responsible for what you've heard. If you're a Christian, will it change the way you live? If you're not a Christian, are you going to stumble over him and eventually be crushed? Today is the day of salvation.